Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Sharnberg, the finance editor, and in today's show, we'll assess the threats to the global economic recovery, from the war in Ukraine to lockdowns in China. After two years of being rocked by the COVID-19 pandemic, Many rich countries are easing restrictions in the hope of boosting growth. Hopes were rising that the global economy was back on a path to recovery. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine cast that in doubt. With economic sanctions... The um, ultimate economic effects of the war and all of the, the sanctions and events yet to come are just very highly uncertain and we need to, we need to understand that disruptions to the supply of wheat and other agricultural products, and increasing energy costs. All of the petrol and gases and diesel come from directly from the Russian side, Ukraine, Russia, and I think because of the war, these prices are really up. A new surge in Omicron cases in China, meanwhile, is adding to fears about global supply chains. Earlier this year, the IMF warned that the worldwide economic recovery from COVID could run into multiple challenges as supply shortages bite, inflation rises and governments start to withdraw emergency support. Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be a further blow. Gita Gopinath is the first deputy managing director of the IMF. Gita, welcome to Money Talks. Hello, Rashina. Pleasure to join you. Now, what does the war do to the global economic recovery? What, what are the immediate effects on inflation, investment and trade? Now, the data that was coming in in January and early February before the invasion of Ukraine pointed to a global economy that was on track for a fast rebound from the Omicron wave. Now, at the same time, supply disruptions remain elevated even before this war. But now we have the war. It has devastating consequences on lives and livelihoods in in Ukraine. We would expect a major contraction in Russia following the economic sanctions. But there are also repercussions for the world as a whole. We're seeing commodity prices that have gone up substantially. And so for most parts of the world, their real incomes are taking a hit because they're living with higher energy and food prices, that has an effect on reducing demand. So this certainly knocks growth for the world down. We have a a, a new set of projections that will come out in uh, April, but everything points to a downgrade for the global outlook. Now, you mentioned that um, prices are going up while 
there's a hit to economic activity. That's generally a dilemma for central bankers. What do you see the correct response of policymakers being given this situation? Inflation in the U.S. is at 7.9%. Inflation in the euro area is at 5.9%. So it is difficult for central banks at this point to wait and see through the additional price effects that are coming from this war. They already need to respond to the underlying widespread inflation pressures in their economies. Uh, And rightly, they are committed to raising interest rates. Now, on the positive side is that several of these economies have seen fast rebounds uh, and recoveries from COVID, and their labor markets are quite strong. So that helps uh, them weather some of these difficulties. But right now, the policy for these countries is indeed to ensure that inflation expectations remain anchored. And for that, they need to communicate very clearly their commitment to keeping inflation down, which will involve raising interest rates. But of course, they should always remain data dependent, which is that if circumstances change uh, and that requires them to rethink the pace of raising interest rates, then they will have to do so. Could we shift to thinking about the long-term effects of the war? We've seen the use of widespread sanctions against Russia, against individuals and institutions and against its central bank. What are the consequences of this? Do you, do you think it could have lasting effects? What history has taught us is that economic recessions and loss of political trust across countries can have very negative impact on globalization. And we saw that most starkly during the interwar years when after the First World War and when the world economy went into a Great Depression in 1929, that's when we saw the big episode of deglobalization. Now we're in a world where we have a serious invasion by Russia into Ukraine. We've seen the sanctions that have been imposed that were well justified and necessary. And in all of this happening in an environment where political trust has become a scarce commodity. And so I think there are real risks to the economic order. I can point to a few areas where we will expect to see big changes. One, in terms of energy trade. Already it's quite clear that the energy landscape will change. I mean, Germany is looking to supplies from Qatar. Countries will move towards more renewables more rapidly, move towards self-reliance to some extent on the energy side. Secondly, is in terms of payment systems. That was already a concern that there would be fragmentation of payment systems even before this war, this war could accelerate that fragmentation. And there are some countries who may rethink the kinds of currencies they hold in their reserve baskets. So these are important changes. And you know the way to rectify this, again, is to rebuild a political trust. We want to get peace as soon as possible. The longer this lasts, the more, you know, the more dramatic these changes will be. And what role do you see for multilateral institutions such as the IMF in a world economic order that is that is fracturing? I mean, it's absolutely critical for international institutions like us and the World Bank and the other institutions to ensure that this kind of fragmentation doesn't happen. We know that there has been tremendous global prosperity that has come about from the close economic integration that the world has experienced over the last decades. There are many benefits from it. 
uh, even during the COVID uh, period when there were supply disruptions and there was you know, lockdowns in different parts of the world, trade remarkably held up. And it was how the world got its supplies of uh, vaccines and medical equipment and other essential needs that they had to meet. So I think it is important to protect that system. It's far from a perfect system. You need reforms in the global trade order. Uh, you need to make sure that people who are left behind are in the social safety net and they're able to retrain for the new jobs. All of those actions are needed. But I think it's absolutely critical for international institutions like us to ensure that the world works together as one, both on trade, on finance, and because there are many big issues that need to be addressed and can only be done if there are global uh, solutions to it, including on the critical issue of climate change. Now, perhaps the biggest global economic story of our time is the, the rise of China. How do you see China's role as a result of the war in Ukraine and the possible reshaping of the world order? Does it emerge stronger? Well, China has been an engine for global growth for several decades now. What we are seeing recently in China is that after a very fast rebound from the initial waves of the pandemic in 2020, uh, growth in China has slowed. So for last year, growth in China is was around 8.1% for the year as a whole, which is certainly high. But if you look at the last quarter, growth had come down to around 4%. And so we are seeing slowing growth, which is partly because a private consumption hasn't uh, fully recovered, and also because of the slowing real estate sector in China. So as we see it, China is absolutely critical to the global economy. It is still one of the biggest manufacturing hubs of the world and supplier of you know, consumer products, electronic products, computer products, and so on to the rest of the world. Uh, but it is in a phase where growth is slowing, where its productivity has slowed down. Uh, it has an aging population, so a shrinking labor force. So there are critical areas that it needs to address, including you know, reform of its uh, state-owned enterprises, opening up its markets further, and also addressing the real estate uh, sector risks that still remain very elevated. Another risk to the economy surely comes from the zero COVID strategy and, and strict lockdowns in the export hubs of Shanghai and Shenzhen. What do you make of that approach at this point? And what are the consequences for the global economy? Is this another supply chain shock being layered upon a long list of supply chain shocks already? Now, China was quite successful with its zero COVID strategy in 2020 and much of 2021. But that said, what we are seeing more recently, many more frequent outbreaks uh, that's making it harder to contain. And as you know now, cases are at record highs in China, even though those numbers overall are quite small. So the strategy, though it has been targeted and temporary, the more frequent these outbreaks happen, we are seeing this having a negative impact on economic activity in China. So China, like every other country, will have to recalibrate its COVID strategy. We can see that it should pave a way for safely exiting from a zero COVID strategy. And one way to do that would be to uh, leverage its very successful vaccination campaign, but with, with boosters that are uh, effective against the new 
uh, COVID variants. Um, because indeed, if we continue to live in a period where more lockdowns are needed, and we are seeing now citywide lockdowns, including in Shenzhen, uh, then that can have a serious impact on the global supply chain. Going back to the, the sort of lasting effects on the world economic order of the war in Ukraine, do you see China's role in the global financial system expanding as a result. So, for example, you talked about changes to payment systems and um, the the makeup of uh, reserve currencies. Does China stand to benefit from that shift? I think several countries, even prior to this war, were exploring new payment systems and also the introduction of their own central bank digital currencies, which, of course, then, you know, avoids the kinds of the SWIFT payment system, the other payment systems, the one doesn't necessarily have to go through. Uh, China certainly has been at the vanguard in terms of central bank digital currencies. So uh, one would expect that their market shares would go up. Uh, But if I were to just step back and think about the scope and the extent to which changes can happen, uh, what we do know is to be able to become a very dominant player in financial markets, it is important, of course, to have very strong financial institutions, to have a very large degree of capital account openness, which means uh, allowing for free mobility of, uh, of capital, and also in terms of flexibility, of full flexibility of the exchange rate. And you know, while China has made a lot of progress in these dimensions, you know, it is hard in many ways to compete with the institutions, for instance, that exist in the US and that back the dollar as a dominant currency. Gita Gopinath, thank you very much. Thank you so much. More on China's economy in a moment. But first, with a subscription to The Economist, you can read or listen to all our coverage of the war in Ukraine, including a piece on the tensions open societies face in trading with autocratic regimes. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We're seeing many big shocks to China's economy. From a surge in COVID cases, to a troubled property sector, a regulatory crackdown on tech firms, and now a war in Ukraine, the effects of which will be felt around the world. With me to analyse this is The Economist's China economics editor, Simon Cox, in Hong Kong. Hi, Simon. Hi. And also Don Wineland, our China business and finance editor in Shanghai. Hi, Don. Hello. Happy to be here. Now, China's in the middle of its biggest COVID outbreak of the pandemic. Don, give us a sense of what the restrictions are are like in China. So the restrictions right now have really varied across the country. If you're looking at northern China, the situation is quite grim. The city of of Shenyang, which has about 9 million people, has just been almost completely 
locked down. So it's kind of like going back to, you know, April 2020 in terms of the types of restrictions that we're seeing. I'm in Shanghai right now, and the situation is a bit better here, but it's also not great. The city, of course, is home to, you know, many of China's top executives. Uh, many multinational executives live here as well. The city government has tried its hardest not to lock down this city, and it's still trying to do that as COVID numbers climb. But we're seeing rolling lockdowns right now. So uh, various districts are being shut down. If a case is detected somewhere in the city, that city block is effectively shut down. If you're walking outside in, in Shanghai right now, you'll find that there's police tape that just kind of restricts entry to certain areas of the city. Street traffic is really down. So it's it's really not a great picture right now that, that China is sending to the world of its most international city. And Simon, China's economy fared relatively well early on in the pandemic. What does the latest outbreak mean for that economic performance? Yeah, so earlier this month, uh, China's government set quite a demanding growth target for itself of around 5.5%. That was a bit higher than expected and higher than most forecasts, higher than about 80% of private sector forecasts. Now, that was before uh, the war in Ukraine. That wouldn't have been factored in to that target. And uh, it was before the latest outbreak of COVID. So what was already looking quite a demanding target now looks really you know, very ambitious, uh, almost fanciful. Now, COVID isn't the only shock hitting the Chinese economy. You've both written about what's been going on in the property sector. Don, tell us the latest there. Sure. So the government clearly recognizes that there's a big problem with the property sector. And, you know, of course, the government kind of brought this crisis on itself by limiting the amount of, of leverage that these big developers could take on. Most recently, in terms of what the government is, is doing to kind of breathe a little bit more life into the market is loosen up on the demand side. So mortgages are getting a bit easier to get in some cities. Some of the figures that we have from January and February also look quite good. Um, so things are looking less worse than they were in December. Property sales volumes are not falling as quickly as they were before. Um, construction starts are down only by 12% as opposed to about 30%. So there's some signs that, that things are picking up. At the same time, though, the developers themselves are looking more and more shaky. There was some news out earlier this week that Evergrande, the, you know, the, the world's most indebted property developer, suddenly realized that banks have claims on $2 billion in the company's cash. That's really a terrible signal for the investors that are trying to recoup some cash from the company right now. Overall, for the, for the developers, it's not looking very good. And I think things will probably get worse for some of the biggest companies. So China's government clearly, as Don points out, uh, China's government makes a clear distinction, I think, between investors, and in particular bondholders, and the construction sector and the employment and growth that it brings. And whilst it's being still quite tough, I think, on the lenders uh, to these developers, uh, it's clear that it wants, if it can, uh, to manage the, the slowdown in the property sector so that it doesn't inflict too grievous harm on employment and incomes. So the strong data we get in January and February, at the same time as there's this sort of worrying news for anyone who holds the bonds of these companies, are actually reflective of this overall approach, I think. And so how's all this playing out in the financial markets? We've got developments in the property sector, the surge in, in COVID, potentially jitters related to war. 
Don, you've been writing about this. It's been a rough couple of weeks. Starting in late February, as the war in Ukraine was kicking up, investors started dumping Chinese shares around the world. So we're talking about Chinese companies that are listed in New York, Hong Kong, also within mainland China. Some of the major indices that track Chinese tech companies have really come down quite a bit during that time. And then we hit a point on March 16th when the government decided to step in and send a very strong signal that it would try to solve some of these problems. And the market has stabilized somewhat since then. But it's still not a great picture. One of the key indicators that we look at for this is outflows from the mainland. And we're not quite seeing record outflows just yet, but we're seeing quite a bit, quite high. We're, we're, we're getting quite close to a record level in terms of foreign investors selling down onshore Chinese stocks and bonds. And do you see geopolitical risk playing a role there as well? Or is it sort of mostly what's going on in the domestic economy, Simon? I think it's a bit of both. Um, there's plenty to worry about within the domestic economy. But there seems to have been this mindset shift, if you like, playing on the minds of foreign investors, where it's really quite easy to imagine scenarios in which China and America might fall out almost as badly as Russia and America have fallen out. And so you can imagine a sort of recalibration of that kind of geopolitical risk, which you know, it doesn't have to happen. It just has to be a, a doubt playing on people's minds. And that's enough to move the price. What's the reaction been from the Chinese authorities to this sell-off? Presumably, some of the things that are making investors jittery are in their control, and some of the other factors, such as geopolitics, may not be entirely in their control. Don? So the reaction has been quite strong if we're just looking at the communication from the Chinese government. As I noted um, last week, the state council held a meeting with um, with Liu He, who is one of the top economic advisors in China, and they sent a very strong message that your laundry list of concerns about China, everywhere from um, Chinese listings in the U.S. to Hong Kong markets to COVID um, to the property market, they basically said that they were going to address all of these problems. It was really a clear signal that they were becoming a bit worried about the market reaction, especially when the onshore markets become a bit turbulent. Um, that's usually when the regulators and, and the government kind of pay more attention to this. So, the, you know, the, the signal has been quite strong. Really now they need to deliver on some of these things. And I think that'll be a lot more difficult than just kind of sending the message. And as we talked about earlier, the authorities are really trying to sort of walk a fine line here between encouraging the property sector to deleverage, but not causing too much turmoil in the economy. Simon, do you think these measures that have been announced will, will do the trick? So it's still quite piecemeal at the moment, but I think there is no reason why they can't pull it off. Uh, theoretically, it is entirely possible to maintain the flow of construction, maintain employment, whilst also allowing investors to take a hit, um, and also you know, deleveraging some of the, the big institutions involved. So far, as, as Don mentioned, what we've seen is really sort of piecemeal, partial and incremental measures. Property restrictions in China are a big patchwork. It's quite hard to keep track of the uh, overall pattern of restrictions, but certainly they have been on the loosening side recently. Uh, there was lots of emphasis placed on a property tax, uh, a pilot scheme that was going to be rolled out nationally. That's now been put on the shelf again, uh, which has 
help to improve sentiment. And the uh, statement that uh, Don alluded to by Liu He and the, the Financial Stability and Development Council included you know, the argument that they were going to make policy more predictable and transparent, and that the ministries responsible for uh, various policies on China would have to check in, if you like, with the financial regulators if those policies were likely to royal financial market sentiment. Now, that, uh, I think, if it's true, if, it, if it's enforced, uh, could make a big difference, because one of the things we've seen over the last year has been a sort of competition amongst regulators uh, to enforce their uh, restrictions within their ballywick more zealously than the others, uh, and very little concern paid, actually, to the impact on financial market sentiment. And what about the zero COVID strategy? Is there a sign that the authorities will find a way to sort of safely exit from that? Gita Gopinath said earlier that China might have to recalibrate its COVID strategy. Don, do you think there's any sign that that might be happening? So if you're looking at the kind of the top level message from the government, there's not a whole lot of movement on this. So recently, Xi Jinping, China's president, was quoted as saying, perseverance is victory. That kind of signals that, you know, they want to continue with zero COVID. If you look at what's actually happening on the ground, I think there are signs that they're at least adapting to the local conditions in some ways. So they are allowing um, at-home testing now. You know, that doesn't seem like a huge change in, in policy, but in China it is because, you know, all the testing has been controlled by the government. Um, if somebody tests positive, the government needs to know about it. By allowing people to test themselves, they're really giving up a little bit of control over this situation. So I, I, I do see that as a kind of a movement in the right direction. They're also, you know, bringing in a Pfizer treatment pill, which could help things as well. At the same time, though, I mean, the overall zero COVID and not living with COVID policy doesn't seem to be changing uh, wholesale. Now, Simon, China's zero COVID policy is sort of watched around the rest of the world because of the potential impact on global supply chains. So talk us through what the impact on those supply chains might be. Yes, no, that's definitely the world's focus. And so uh, I spoke earlier this week to Zvi Scheiber, who is CEO of the Freightos Group, an online shipping marketplace, about what's been happening to the cost of transporting goods. There's been quite a ride uh, since the beginning of COVID. Uh, we've seen unexpected increases in consumer demand for imported goods, which has created a huge stress on supply chains at every possible level, the, the shipping, the ports, the trains, the trucks. So if you look, for example, at uh, the index we publish, that was trading pre-COVID, or, or it was quoted pre-COVID at about $1,500 to ship a 40-foot container from China to the US West Coast. That peaked um, in September at around uh, $20,000. Uh, since then, it's eased back uh, a little bit, but it's still to about $14,000 in January, and then it's creeped back up to about $16,000 now. So we're still more than 10x what we were pre-COVID. So a very, very uh, dramatic increase in shipping costs. So with shipping costs so elevated, people are watching outbreaks in places like Shenzhen with great alarm. Now, as it happens, this particular shutdown in Shenzhen was very short-lived. It seems as if the authorities managed to get COVID under control quite quickly. And so although there may have been some disruption to uh, trucking and manpower availability, uh, Yantian port, which is key for a lot of exports from China, especially to the US, that port managed to operate normally. But we've seen uh, in the past 
that uh, outbreaks can disrupt port activity. So this could all happen again if Omicron slips the leash, uh, as V. Schreiber was describing to me earlier this week. A lot of people are betting that China will be forced to abandon the zero COVID policy. Uh, they've now had COVID in 28 out of 31 regions. So a lot of people are betting they'll be forced to let COVID spread. But even so, it's very unlikely they'll let COVID spread unchecked. So we're likely to see regional shutdowns in order to control the spread and flatten the peak of the curve. Uh, so that will have more disruption. And then, of course, if China does keep uh, pursuing zero COVID, th- this is not going to be the last shutdown either. There, there will have to be more shutdowns. Omicron is, is so contagious. Um, the new variant, uh, BA2, is even more contagious. So whether zero COVID uh, policy continues or not, we can expect more shutdowns. And that's the bigger worry. And so what could that mean for the rest of the world, Simon? So everyone clearly is very concerned about inflation right now in America, uh, in Europe. And with inflation as high as it is, anything that disrupts the supply chain is hardly going to help. That said, I do think some of the fears are are somewhat exaggerated. Uh, Chinese imports are not a huge part of the consumer price index in America, which is still dominated by things like domestic services. And although we have seen the cost of Chinese imports go up uh, by about 4 or 5% over the past year, that's dwarfed by increases from other parts of the world. For example, imports from other rich nations uh, have gone up by about 11% over the same period. Let's talk about the impact of world events on China. This is really the subject of a separate episode in itself, and I'm sure a question will be coming back to. But Gita Gopinath mentioned when we spoke with her earlier that we could be seeing a a sort of fracturing in the world economic order, a shift in payment services and the makeup of countries' reserve currencies. Do you think that's seen in China as an opportunity to expand its role in the global financial architecture? Don? So... I think China certainly wants to expand its global payment system. It wants to expand the usage of the yuan as a a global currency. I still feel like it's quite constrained in this situation. Its infrastructure, the global payment system called SIPs, is really not up to the task right now. Um, It still relies on SWIFT, which is the the predominant um, financial messaging system in the world. So it's really tough right now for China to expand that part of its financial system without running into either technical problems or also running into potential U.S. Uh, sanctions. No doubt, though, China's looking at parts of this as, a, as an opportunity. And, and, you know, if it is able to expand its UN-denominated trade with Russia, I think it certainly will. Simon? So to be honest, I think this is a, a bit of a red herring. Um, as Don suggested, you know, if America doesn't like some sort of business you're doing, it can make life very difficult for you, almost regardless of the technical way in which you do it. There doesn't seem to be a sort of technical workaround that makes you invulnerable to US sanctions. Now, it may be that there can be a small circle of allies that you can trade with. But obviously, if you're limiting your trade just to countries that agree with you, that's immiserating even by itself. So I think China will always be exposed to US displeasure, if you like, even if it does innovate in some of these financial plumbing matters. I think China's best defence against the sort of sanctions America has imposed on Russia is actually to become more entangled with the US financial system, so much so that the US will fear financial blowback if indeed it does cripple some financial institutions in China. I think that kind of mutual destruction is, if you like, the best protection for an economy like China's. Simon and Don, thank you very much. 
Thank you. Thank you. Our thanks too to Geeta Gopinath and Zvi Schreiber. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. There's more from Economist podcast on living with COVID two years on and what comes next. Hear more on our science and tech show called Babbage. You can find it on your podcast app. The producer today is Jat Gill. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. And the editor is Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Rachna Schanberg. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.